0: So we're um, starting off with uh, Acts 19, 20 and 21, and then we'll move over to Acts 20. So after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Now we're over to uh, chapter 20. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some of the Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Separta, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby; Timothy also, Titicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But when we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting and seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down there, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. He then went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Good
1: morning, church family. Let's give me a moment to get set up here. Got one less hand than usual, so we'll see how we go. All right. Have you ever fallen asleep during a sermon? Paul Eutychus might have tumbled off his perch in Acts 20, but it's humbling to notice that what took Paul many hours of preaching achieve, a near-fatal napping in one of his listeners, takes most preachers a mere few minutes on a Sunday morning. This is the blurb from the back of a book titled, Saving Uticus* by Gary Miller and Phil Campbell. It's a preaching book for preachers, and its subtitle is, How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake. Maybe you are prone to the mid-sermon snooze. About 15 minutes in, the shoulders sink the eyes slowly droop shut as the voice from the front fades into the back of your mind as it drones on and on. We're only 15 seconds in. Don't fall asleep yet. Maybe your uh, mid sermon stupor is more of a mental form than physical sleeping, you know. The mind wanders to the afternoon's activities, the eyes glaze over, the open Bible tips shut the phone comes out of the pocket, the Facebook app loads. Well, our Bible passage puts two short stories before us today. One short story about a big section of Paul's journey and another short story involving a sermon Sleepyhead's miraculous resurrection. And both short stories actually tie together to teach us about Paul's approach to his mission work. Paul's mission work is more than evangelizing new converts, it also involves, you can see it on the screen, strengthening existing believers by preaching God's Word. Strengthening existing believers by preaching God's Word. We saw this idea of strengthening two weeks ago in Alex's sermon, and it's, it's again in today's passage too. Now, in keeping with the second story, I'm going to try and not make you fall asleep. I've worked hard to make this engaging, so stay awake. Stay alive and listen up as we together learn from the Word of God. Let's pray to begin. Heavenly Father, as we hear your voice to us this day, please deliver us from hardness of heart. Help us to concentrate on what you have to say to us. Please help me to get out of the way that your Word may shine clearly forth. We pray that we may not merely listen to your Word, but do what it says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage begins just after the riot in Ephesus. But the story of the riot in Ephesus is a bit of a sidetrack story. To understand the flow of the rest of the book of Acts, we need to go back to that first Bible reading from chapter 19, verse 21. It gives us direction for the rest of the book. It says, after all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. Paul's already decided where he's going to go. He's going to go through Macedonia and Achaia, then to Jerusalem, and after that, on to Rome. So we pick up our story in chapter 20, verse 1, and I hope you've got an open Bible in front of you, and we're going to see how this plan plays out. 20, verse 1. It's on the screen as well. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. Notice that before he sets out, he gathers the church in Ephesus to encourage them. There's a good chance that this is actually the last time Paul is in Ephesus. So what does he do in these final hours with these people? He preaches the Word of God to them. He encourages them. After doing this, he sets out for Macedonia. Verse 2. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. Now, I've got a map on the screen to help us better visualize the story. If we just zoom in a bit, please, Dan. There we go. So you can see on the map there, he starts in Ephesus, that green green dot on the right-hand side. He goes up north to that place Troas, across the water, into the region of Macedonia, where he goes west and then down south into Achaia. Achaia is Greece, the same thing. So that's his trip. Now, if you know Axwell, well, you might be thinking, hang on a sec, he's been to all these places before. You're right, he has. Remember, this is Paul's third missionary journey. He's actually revisiting many places he's already been to years ago. If we go to the map of his second trip, you can see it's very similar, that it goes much of the same route. And we compare again with the third in the green, there it is, much the same route. Why? Why does Paul bother revisiting all these people? I mean, surely it would be better to go out to new places and preach with other people who haven't heard about Jesus. Why does he do this? Well, let's look at the Bible. Verse 20, verse 2. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. Paul is back to his strengthening work that Alex taught us about two weeks ago. He's speaking words of encouragement. You see, Paul's mission work is more than evangelizing new converts, it involves strengthening existing believers by preaching the God's Word, God's Word to them, not just about making new disciples, but it's also about presenting those disciples fully mature in Christ, Colossians chapter 128. How precious it must have been for Paul to return to all these towns and people to see how they had grown in the faith how precious a thing it is to watch people grow and mature over the years into godly christian men and women how encouraging is it as a christian friend or as a growth group leader or as a youth group leader to see people make real progress in the faith over the years i want to share some little stories with you story number 1 about 6 years ago i started to teach the uh, year 6 to 8 bible study group we spend a term learning about the structure of the Bible, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, how the whole thing all fits together and points to Jesus, that sort of thing. And I remember I made a little poster with all the books of the Bible and it had all the different genres. There it is on the screen. I found the poster last year. I was like, oh, that's cool. I stuck it on our fridge because I was like, oh, no, maybe it's useful in growth, or something. I don't know. Our um, uh, real estate agent probably thought it was weird when they came through for rental inspection. It doesn't matter. It's on our fridge. And so we're having a growth group one time, and someone sits down in our growth group, one young man, who was actually in that 6 to 8 group, and he says, I remember that poster. You showed us that six years ago when we were doing the the structure of the Bible stuff in 6 to 8 Bible study. That was really cool. That was really encouraging. God had used my clumsy little poster to make a long-term difference in someone's Christian growth. That's story number one. Story number two, another short story. Last year, at our Harrington Park 20-year anniversary, Mark Thomas shared with us some of the struggles and suffering that he is currently enduring. But he also shared with us the importance of getting right with God and the hope of, of life forever with a resurrected body with God forever. It was really special. I remember chatting afterward with Mark uh, last, that day last year, And as we were chatting, Liam Flower comes up. Here he is on the screen on the left there. Liam's a member of our night church, and he's here this morning as well. Liam came up and said to Mark, It's good to see you, Mark. I remember you, and I just want to say thank you, because you gave me my first Bible when I was in year five at Harrington Park Public School, SRE. I remember starting to weep as I watched this beautiful conversation unfold. Liam is, a faithful, is now a faithful core partner of our night church family and serves God's people tirelessly. All those years ago, Mark gave Liam that Bible, and it had a great gospel impact. He's still got it to this day. On the inside cover, it says, Presented to Liam Flower by Mark Thomas. It's, it, was, it was amazing. It was such a joy to see them reunited last year. One more story. This is Ellie and Patrick. Ellie and Patrick are also members of our night church. And they started coming to our church in, I think it was 2018. Do you know why they chose our church? They wanted to come to a church. Do you know why they picked ours? It's because Jono taught Ellie SRE when she was in year three. How cool is that? My, that's my favorite SRE story. Anyway, I remember going along to EC with Gav, uh, with Ellie and Patrick. Uh, they joined a growth group. They became Christians. Praise God. They got married in the middle of lockdown in a field because that's what the rules were at that time. Now they're youth group leaders. They've both given talks at youth group and they're even expecting their first child in December this year. It's been a totally awesome joy to watch God grow these guys over the years. How precious a thing it is to watch people grow and mature over the years into godly Christian men and women. I wonder if Paul shared a similar joy as he revisited all these churches from his first visit years and years ago, reconnecting with believers that he had seen converted, visiting old friends, sharing in gospel partnership and life together. Paul came back to these believers to strengthen them with God's Word, and it would have been a really precious time for both of them. Paul's tour through Macedonia ends with three months in Greece. Fun fact, this is probably the time that he wrote the book of Romans. He's bunkered down in Greece over winter, and so we read in verse 3, because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. End of his three-month winter holiday, he's keen to go back to Jerusalem, but once again, Paul encounters opposition this time for some Jews in Greece. But once again, we are reminded that gospel increase cannot be hindered because Jesus will grow his kingdom despite hindrances. You see, even if Paul's plans to go back to Jerusalem are blocked temporarily, no matter. He travels back through Macedonia and revisits again all those same people. He's given more opportunity to strengthen. You see on the map there, it's like a, the arrow is a two-way arrow. He goes back the same way that he came. It's a bit like a beach ball. Trying to stop the growth of God's kingdom, or in other words, trying to stop the preaching of the gospel, is like trying to push a beach ball under water. It's a fruitless effort, it will never succeed. You, know, you try to, to squash it down, but then it just shoots sideways and will burst out somewhere else. Same deal, you can't stop the preaching of the gospel. That's Paul's big travel journey. Now we move on to consider his traveling buddies. Looking in your Bible verse four and five. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Antichicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. Here they all are on the screen. I'm sure they look just like that. I want to highlight two points from this uh, little bit first point is that all of these guys come from different places. I've color-coded them for you. You've left to right, you've got Berea and Thessalonica. They're in the region of Macedonia, where Paul's just been touring through. Derby and Lystra, they're in the province of Galatia. And Ephesus, of course, is in the province of Asia, where this little uh, story began. These seven guys met Paul on his earlier journeys, and then they've been sent by their home churches as representatives to join in on Paul's mission. I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty cool. You see, gospel mission to all nations generates disciple-making disciples from those nations to go to other nations. I think that's pretty cool. The second thing we can learn from from these guys is this, the strengthening work of the church is not a one-man mission. Paul did not, in fact, Paul could not do his mission work alone. And it's, you know, it's not even that it was Paul's mission and he just had a bunch of sidekicks on the side to like, help him out and pass him the tools sort of thing. No, 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 no. All of these guys are valuable partners who played critical roles. The church does not equal the minister. What, what does the word church mean? Someone call it out. What does church mean? Gathering, thank you, that's right. By definition, the church is multiple people gathered together because we've got something in common, that is, following the risen Lord Jesus. As multiple members, then, of one body, we all have a part to play. All have a part to play. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. At the moment, many of our church staff team are on well-deserved holidays. Does this mean that all of a sudden our church is broken, that our spiritual growth just hits pause and we wait for them all to come back to fix us up again? No, we're not Catholics. We don't rely on a Pope. We rely on the Word of God and on one another. I strengthen you in the faith just as you strengthen me in the faith. We get on with our daily work of strengthening and building one another up by God's Word because the strengthening work of the church is not a one-man mission." So this is Paul's big trip. What do we learn? He goes around to strengthen existing believers by preaching God's word. He's not alone in achieving that mission, but rather is surrounded by a faithful cloud of mission partners from all over the world, because the strengthening work of the church is not a one-man mission. Moving on to point two in your outlines. at that 15-minute mark, so if you've fallen asleep, wake up. Point two. Ring the bell, that's right. This is our second short story, and it's about a sermon sleepyhead. Once Paul and his companions are reunited at Troas, we get this little account of one evening of their seven-day stay there. It's quite an interesting story. Let's read verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. In this little zoomed-in snapshot of Paul's typical visit routine, we see him encouraging and strengthening the believers. He's only with them for seven days, and on the last day, they come together to share in a meal, which is likely the Lord's Supper, not 100% sure, but probably. And they come together to to, to do that and to hear the Word of God preached. Just imagine for a second that you're sitting in growth group one week, and that you know that. For some reason, maybe you're moving to the other side of the world the next day or something, but for some reason, this is the last growth group you'll ever have with these particular people. What would you do in your final hours together? For Paul, the priority in these final hours with his church at Troas is to preach to them. But it's not just a priority for Paul, it's a priority for all the people. They've come together on a Sunday afternoon, just about to launch into another week of work or whatever they do, but they're willing to stay up late into the night, to midnight, to listen to the Word of God. The church in Troas is eager to be strengthened by God's Word. How do we muscle up for the Christian life? By taking seriously our own learning of God's Word. But more of that later. Let's read on. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Poor Eutychus. This account might read as a bit of a funny story on the surface, but it really is quite tragic. Eutychus is described as a young man. In ancient times, this means he's probably around as young as 10 or 12, 14 years old. He really is quite young. So what we're reading here is the sudden tragic, the story of of the sudden tragic death of a child or a teenager. Let's imagine the scene. It's 11.30 p.m. The sun has well and truly set. It's dark and cold outside, but it's warm inside. We've got many lamps. The upstairs room is packed full of people. The Apostle Paul is up the front of the room, preaching, along with all his companions that we saw before. The room is packed full of many men and women from the church at Troas. Eutychus is seated in a window up the back. The window is just an opening in the wall. There's no glass pane. He is tired from the week's work. He's excited that the Apostle Paul has come back to their town to preach, and he wants to listen to what he has to say, but Eutychus is tired. He's fighting to stay awake. His shoulders sink, his eyes slowly droop shut, as Paul's voice from the front fades to the back of his mind as he talks on and on. Eutychus falls backwards out the window, dropping to the ground from the third story. Bang! People rush downstairs. His parents hurry over. They pick him up, dead. Dead. The Apostle Paul is among the stampede, thundering down the stairs. He comes to the front of the crowd around the dead boy. He throws himself down upon the lifeless body, wraps his arms around him. Don't be alarmed. He is alive. The boy opens his eyes. His parents help him to his feet. The crowd exclaims with amazement, he is alive. What a miraculous relief. The young man hugs his parents. They take him home alive and all are greatly comforted. This tragic story has a miraculous, glorious ending. Why did Luke include it in his account? That's a good question. Maybe simply because something extraordinary happened that night. I mean, it's not often people rise from the dead. Maybe he included it because It's very similar to stories of Elisha and Elijah, way back in the Old Testament, raising dead youths back to life. Maybe that's why I include it, because it's similar. Maybe this story is here just to show us the normalcy of tragedy and grief in the common human experience. All of these things may be true, but what I want us to see from this story today is that the resurrection gives hope. Not hope in this world, but hope in the world to come. In my little dramatic retelling of the story just then, I hope that you noticed that I skipped verse 11. I hope you were reading along in your Bible and noticed that. Verse 11 says, He went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. After God raised Eutychus to life through his servant Paul, Paul goes back upstairs. Presumably, all the people go up back with him. And what do they do? They break bread and eat, which is once again likely to be the Lord's Supper. And they do that for the second time that night, which remembers the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Keep in mind that all of this is happening on the first day of the week, Sunday, which is the day that Jesus himself was raised from the dead. So putting all this together, I wonder if they took the Lord's Supper to remind one another of Jesus' resurrection which gives his people hope for resurrection too. Not for temporary resurrection here on earth, like Eutychus, or Elijah and Elisha's youths, or even Lazarus in 1 John, 14, 1, sorry, John 11, all received. All those guys were raised from the dead, but they died later on. No, we don't wait for and expect God to give us bodily resurrection in this world. Suffering, grief... Tragedy, even terminal illness and death are the norm rather than the exception in this fallen world, and that is truly awful. But we do have hope for resurrection in the age to come, life after death in heaven for eternity. Jesus' resurrection means that we too have resurrection. We are spiritually raised with Christ now. And when after we die, our physical bodies will catch up with that spiritual reality. Eutychus' parents and the church in Troas may have been greatly comforted when they took the young man home alive. But we can take a greater comfort, for we have hope for resurrection for eternity. Back to our passage, what happens after they break bread? Paul keeps on preaching. This guy won't shut up. He keeps on going until daybreak. Can you imagine an all-night sermon? That just blows my mind. No No doubt now he is encouraging the people about the resurrection of the dead. We see yet again that the preaching of the word is the big priority for the Apostle Paul. It's a priority for his listeners too, even all through the night and into the morning. I'm about to say the magic words that make all the sleepy heads ears prick up Ready? And now for some implications to close. If it's true that gospel mission involves strengthening existing believers by preaching God's Word, then what do we do about it? Here you go. I've got three points. Why not write them down? They're on the screen. Number one, invest Christianly in people for the long haul. Like Ken talked about at the men's breakie, it might take 30 years, but God might still use that to bear gospel fruit. Like Paul who revisited churches multiple times, the Christian witness is not a one-hit kind of thing. Sometimes maybe, but often not. So keep praying for people's growth. You never know how close someone might be to accepting Jesus as Lord. It might happen next week. God knows, so keep praying. Use your share card. We've got heaps more up the back. I've got mine up here somewhere, under my foot, thank you. Use your share card, pray for people that they might come to know Jesus as Lord. How cool would it be to have someone come up to you in five years' time, 10 years' time, 15 years' time, or even in heaven, in eternity, someone comes up to you and says, hey, thank you so much for investing Christianly in me all those years and years ago. You made a big difference in my walk with Jesus, and now I'm standing firm in him. I can't think of any better news and to hear that. That's point one. Point two, we need one another. The strengthening of the church is not a one-man mission. You may have heard of the gospel summary, Two Ways to Live. I've come up with my own two ways. It's called Two Ways to Church. Here you go. There's two ways you can view church. Flourishing church or consumer church. First, flourishing church. Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. We need one another. It's our job, our duty, to teach and warn and build each other up from the Bible. We do this in heaps of ways, reading the Bible together, encouraging and rebuking each other in conversation, as we journey the Christian life shoulder to shoulder, through our growth groups, one-on-one mentoring, and even singing to each other in church. If you're not connected to a growth group, then let me encourage you to join one. You'll be encouraged. You have opportunity to encourage others. You form friendships that last a lifetime. And most importantly, you are strengthened by God's word with other people. If you'd like to find out more about growth groups, come and talk to Ben. Talk to me right on your Connect form. If you are connected to a growth group, commit to it and keep leaning in to your church family there when times of struggle or suffering rise up. The second way to church is called consumer church. It's like going to the movies, you know. I'm, I'm just here to receive a service, you know. I'm a, a paying customer. I turn up, I do a bit to help out, then I sit and receive what the church or the minister will provide to me. What a backwards view of church. Something that bothers me is that we, we call our time together on a Sunday a church service. We're not here to receive a service. We come here to serve one another. A better, much, much better name that I think would be called the church gathering. That's what church is. It's a gathering. It's not a service. Get rid of the idea of consumer church. It doesn't exist. It's an oxymoron. We need one another. Last point: the preaching of the word is a priority. So, don't fall asleep in the sermon. In case you have a too small view of the Bible, let me remind you that the Bible is God's Word. Do you delight in God's Word like the psalmist does in Psalm 1? If you give little effort to listening to the Father and the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, who created you, saved you, adopted you, and listens to your prayers, if you give little effort to hearing His voice from the pages of Scripture, then you need to repent. Sermons are about teaching the Bible. Teaching and learning go together. The exercise requires a good teacher, but also a willing learner, otherwise it doesn't work. Now guys, I've got to level with you for a second. I've sat through a lot of sermons in my short life. I'm a pastor's kid for goodness sake, and I get it. It is hard. I remember when I was in year six, I was old enough to be allowed to come to night church. It was the coolest thing, I thought. But I soon realized that we have the same sermons at night church as we do at Harrington Park, the same sermon on the same day. So for years now, up until you know present day, I often hear double sermons every Sunday. And sometimes, oh, how boring it was. You know, I've, I've already heard this before. Why am I here? I just want to go to sleep or tune out or watch YouTube or plan my week or something. This, surely this is a waste of time. But then I grew up and I realized that I don't go to church for my own sake, I go to church for the sake of other people. And if I'm falling asleep or scrolling my phone during the sermon, well, that's gonna be a massive discouragement to everyone around me, so I, I, I can't do that. So here you go, here's five top tips for keeping the preaching of the word a priority. Five top sermon listening tips from my, uh, my experience. Number one, bring your own paper Bible. Keep it open, read from it and keep it open. It helps you keep interested, helps make sure that the preacher isn't being a heretic because you're actually checking what he's saying against the Word of God. It also helps you get to know your own Bible better. You know, I've been studying Acts 20 this week. I now know that on the right-hand side of the page, about halfway down, is Acts chapter 20, verse 1. I've gotten familiar with my own Bible through this this exercise. So bring your own paper Bible. Number two, write notes. We've got this multi-purpose piece of paper helps you concentrate on what's being said. Even if you never look at it again, it'll help you stay focused. Number three, if your phone causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. In other words, if your phone distracts you from paying attention to the Word of God, then don't bring it to church. Don't bring it to growth group. Think about it with kids. If your kid is on a screen when they're meant to be doing something else, or if they're meant to be listening to you, you tell them to put the screen away, and to focus, or put the screen away and listen up. Adults, we're not so different after all. Top number, tip number four, read the passage in advance. If a preacher is going to spend 10, 15, 20 hours preparing a sermon, surely it's good for you to spend five minutes reading the passage beforehand too. Do it with your spouse or your kids, if you've got a spouse or kids. Do it so you're ready to learn from the Word of God. Here you go, next Sunday. Gibson's gonna be preaching on Acts 20, verse 13 to 38. There you go, there's some homework for this week. Read that passage in advance so you're ready to learn come Sunday. Last tip, ask questions. When the sermon's done, ask, was the point of the talk the point of the passage? Was this talk actually from the Bible passage or was it just some waffle that some guy cooked up on his computer? Ask that question. Take away one thing to keep thinking about, to share with someone over morning tea to put into practice this week. I've talked long enough, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that we are strengthened as your church by your word. Please help us to keep looking to one another, to encourage each other and build one another up. Help us to lean in to each other, to encourage and strengthen one another by your word. Help us to keep preaching your word as a priority. Help us to keep listening and learning to your, from your word as a priority too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.